Well, let's turn to the Lord in prayer once again and ask him for his help as we look at his word. Oh, Father, we come to look at your word, and you are the one who speaks and creates life by your word. We thank you that out of nothing you made the world and all that is in it, and you gave us life and breath in all things. And we pray that that same word that created the world and gave us life would give us spiritual life and renew that spiritual life in us through your word. Thank you for the, the efficacious nature of your word, that it that you call, you make the reality of what you speak of in your word. And you need nothing else other than your word to do it. So as we come to the point where we focus on applying it to our lives, Lord, create life, create peace, create dependence upon you, create spiritual life, and renew our minds and our hearts and our affections and our wills and our minds to know you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the passage that I read for you, uh, particularly verses 4 through 11, is going to be the subject of three messages we will look at for, uh, for three weeks, but, uh, and each time we're going to look at a little bit different part of it. This time we're going to ask the question, what does it mean to know Jesus Christ? And, and really, how well do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus even? Do you know Jesus? Now, let me, uh, as you consider that question, let me give you an illustration to help kind of parse that out and think through. Um, At our house, like probably some of you, uh, we like to watch the Olympics. And recently, somebody in our house really wanted to watch the luge and and the skeleton, too. And so we did. We watched over and over again. They they go down and they go down and they they go down. And after watching for, you know, 45 minutes and hearing the commentators uh, talk about it, I might think that, hey, I, I know the luge, right? I know that you need to get a good start. And I know that you shouldn't hit the sides. And for some way that's still mysterious to me, you kind of just let the sled do its thing, which I think it would anyway, but... But anyway, I kind of know the luge, and suppose I I researched it even more. I I studied it and studied it and became an expert on it. I could give classes and seminars, and people could ask me questions, anything, and I could answer about the luge. Would I know the luge like the Olympic athletes know it, though? I mean, suppose I mounted the, uh, you know, on top of the hill, mounted the sled, and, and tried to go down myself. See, I don't think anybody looking at me go down would say, hey, that guy really knows the luge. They would probably say, oh, that had to hurt. (laughs) And if I lived, which may or may not happen, I I don't think that I would agree that I knew the luge either. And see, the point is this. There's a big difference between knowing about something, knowing it in theory, knowing it academically, and knowing it personally, knowing it intimately, knowing it by experience. Sorry, I just need to move this out of the way because it's, I know it very well. It's staring me in the face. Um, you know, it's the difference between knowing a historical figure like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King, the knowing about them versus actually knowing them in person. Um, I do a lot of funerals for people. A lot of them I do not know. I've never met them before. Um, never met them ever, really. And in preparation for the funeral, I ask the family, the relatives, lots of questions to get a picture of their life so I can do the eulogy and and honor the the person. And what sometimes happens is I end up knowing more facts about the person than some of their friends did, particularly the ones who knew them later in life. 
But just because I know more facts about the person doesn't mean that I really knew them. I don't know what they're like. I don't know what it feels like to spend time with them. I don't know what it's like to be the recipient of their friendship. I don't know them. I just know about them. So, friends, with that distinction in mind, consider the question, do you know Jesus? Do you know what it's like to be his friend? Do you know what it's like to be the recipient of his love? Do you know him by experience, not just know facts about him? Do you know him? Well, we are looking at the book of Philippians, which was written by Paul. And one of the things that's helpful to know about Paul is that he was a scholar and academic by trade. I mean, that, that's what he really wanted to do with his life before he met Christ. He would, he would be an academic. Um, and some even theorize that he had the entire Old Testament memorized. That's, that's, we don't know for that for sure, but, but certainly some people back then did, and that's, that's possible. He, he knew Christian theology as well. Paul was an expert at knowing about something. However, that's not how he knows Christ. The way he talks about Christ here, he doesn't simply know about Christ. He knows Christ. He knows Christ personally. He knows Christ experientially. So we're going to look at this passage where Paul talks about him knowing Christ. And it'll be good for us to, through that passage, ask ourselves, do we know Christ? And if we do not... How do we come to know him? We're going to see three things. That's on your outline. One, we're going to see the importance of knowing Christ. Two, we're going to see how we come to know him. And three, we're going to see what knowing him leads to. What is the end? What is the goal? What does knowing him lead to? And my prayer is that as we look about at knowing Christ, we won't simply learn about knowing him. We will know him. We will experience him as we look at his word because he is present in his word. He is here in his word so we can know him. So first, the importance of knowing Jesus. And and here's sort of a principle that this passage assumes, and that is that you can tell how important something is based upon what you are willing to give up in order to get it. We're always willing to give up things of lesser importance in order to gain something of greater importance. And we can tell how important something is, the ultimate important thing, in light by how much we're willing to give up to get it. And we face situations where we have to choose between things all the time. So we talked about the Olympic athletes, and they have to make a choice. Do I want to have a life, (laughs) friends, hobbies, recreation, or do I want to invest my entire life to try to make it to the Olympics? They can't have both. They have to choose, and they have to pick the one that is more important to them. Or so you have to sometimes choose. Can I, do I want to have a family, or do I want my freedom and autonomy, be able to do whatever I want? You, You can't have both. You have to choose. We get in this passage a very loud statement concerning the value of knowing Jesus based upon everything that Paul is saying he's willing to give up to know him. So look at verse 8, and verse 8 is going to be the main verse that we'll focus on in this time together. Um, I count it all as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. He counts it all as loss that he may know him. He's willing to give up everything in order to know Jesus. And we see what he gives up in this list of things, beginning in verse 5. He gives up his religious purity. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. And what that actually means, it's not just a medical report there, it means he's a Jew by birth. He's not a convert. He doesn't come into the Jewish faith later on. No, he's born that way and raised that way. And 
That would give him status in his community. But he's willing to give up his religious purity. He's willing to give up his ethnic purity. He says he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And see, many Jewish people back then were sort of Hebrew on the outside, Jewish on the outside, but then really Greek on the inside. And he's saying, no, my parents were real Jewish people. I speak Hebrew. I've spoken Hebrew. I am a true Jewish person. He is ethnically pure. He also has the reputation for religious zeal. He's persecuted the church, which basically means he's risking being seen as a murderer in the eyes of the state in order to keep his religion pure. He is a, has religious zeal through the roof. He is blameless. I was blameless, he said. So he has righteousness. Now, when people read this list, sometimes the assumption is, oh, Paul must have been like this arrogant, stuck-up guy. How terrible would it be to know Paul? But I don't think that's really what Paul was like. I don't think this means that Paul was arrogant and stuck up and and self-righteous. No. When I read this list and think about what Paul would have been like, um, the person who I think of, uh, kind of a character that we might know, is, uh, you know, the Sound of Music and Maria, you know, a a figure there who who is good, I think Paul would have had similar characteristics of her. And I'll tell you why. Because, you know, know, the character played by Julia Andrews, that that character, if you've seen the movie. In the beginning of the movie, she sings a song where she says, um, I have confidence in me. Right? She's going to face a difficult situation, and she says, I have confidence in me. Uh, And then later on in the movie, after uh, she falls in love with the captain, and they're going to get married, she sings another song where she says, Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. What's the presupposition of that song? The presupposition is that if she's going to be blessed, it's because of her character. That's what she has confidence in, her confidence in me, she says. She's a a nice person who uh, you'd want as a neighbor. And her confidence is grounded in herself. I think that's basically what Paul is saying. Hey, I'm a good guy. I'm a nice guy. I've done everything to make me, you know, the kind of person that everybody else would want to be. I'm a good person. But Paul is saying, I'm willing to renounce all of it so that I might know Christ. I'm willing to renounce all of it that I can gain Christ because Christ is that valuable. Look again at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, whatever was gained to me, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, I count everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I count them to be rubbish that I might gain Christ. Christ is what is valuable, and he's willing to give up everything else to gain him. There's two words in here that are particularly colorful that would be helpful for us to know. The first word is where Paul says, surpassing value. That means the above everything else value. Value more important than anything else. Guys, no talking in the front row. Um, Value above everything else. The other word that's interesting here is the word rubbish. He counts everything rubbish. Now, rubbish here doesn't mean, you know, some beer cans, an old rusty bike, and a car tire. That's not the kind of rubbish that he means here. He means excrement. He means dung. It's, It's not just of no value. It's of negative value. It's loss. That's what he says anything that prevents him from coming to Christ is like. That's what he says about his goodness, 
about his reputation, about the fact that everybody would want to know him because he's a good guy. That's what he says about that. Anything that keeps Paul from knowing Christ is like dung. That's how important Christ is. Friends, how important is Christ to you? Would you say the same thing? I would suspect that if we poked around in your life a little bit, we'd find something in your life which you're willing to count everything as loss in order for you to gain that thing. Or something that you're willing to lose everything else, but no, I will not lose this. I will hold on to this so tightly and willing to let everything else go that I may have this thing. Friends, what is that? And is it Christ? Now, turn to our second point. How do we know him? How do we know him? Now, perhaps you see, yes, Christ is valuable. Perhaps the talk about Christ super above value resonates in your heart, and you say, yes, I do know that he is that valuable. Well, then you want to figure out, okay, how do I know him? How do I know him better? But perhaps, if you're honest with yourself, you say, no, I I don't see Christ that valuable. He's not that important. Well, friends, you want to look at how we know him because there's something about how we know him that actually reveals him as being so incredibly valuable. If we understand how we know him, we understand something of the dynamic of our relationship with Christ, and that tells us something about Christ, about his value. That's what we're going to see. Now, the question we're going to begin with is, why is it the case that Paul sees it as necessary to give up confidence in himself in order to gain Christ. Why does he have to choose? Why can't he be both, you know, confident in his moral blamelessness and his religious zeal and his moral purity and still know Christ? Well, why can't both be the case? Why does he have to choose? If we trace that question out a little bit, we'll find something very important about our relationship with God. And the first thing we have to realize is that under normal circumstances, having a good performance and having high status in the eyes of the world actually does help us know people. That, that is what normally aids our relationships with others. And, you know, if, if we look at Paul's, uh, that's why, as I said before, when we look at Paul's list, we have to realize it doesn't mean he was a, an arrogant fool. No, he was a good person. I mean, wouldn't you like Maria from The Sound of Music to be your neighbor? Yes, take our kids out to the Alps and teach them how to sing. That sounds great. I mean, we like that kind of person. And in that movie, her, her uh, charisma, her virtue is what got her into the door to have the relationships with the people that she did. And you think about it this way. You can't just um, go down if you don't have anything to do this evening. You can't go down to the White House and knock on the door and meet with the President of the United States. You'll be turned away. No, you, you can't. There's nothing that you have to get you into that relationship. But if you go to Sochi and you win a medal at the Olympics, well, then you're invited to the White House. See, it's, it's that good performance, that high status that gets you in the door to certain relationships. And that's the way the world works. Maybe it's not your performance per se, but maybe you have a, a great sense of humor and you realize that your sense of humor opens the door for you knowing people. and Maybe you're particularly able to relate well to people or you're sensitive and you can understand them well. And, and that gets you in the door to knowing people. And, and maybe you look attractive and you realize, well, your, your looks have gotten you various places. See, the world works according to the system where our status and our performance helps us in relationships. It helps us get to know people. But 
that doesn't work for Jesus. He's not impressed with our performance. He's not impressed with our sense of humor. Jesus doesn't look down and say, hey, that guy's really funny. I want him as my friend. Or he, he does really good work. I think I'll bring him on my team. No, that's not the way our relationship works with Jesus. Also, under normal circumstances, having good status, having high status, gives you a little bit of kind of bargaining power in relationships with other people. So, um, for instance, if a student is meeting with a professor, it's the professor, because of his or her status, that really guides and directs the relationship, isn't it? And the professor is the one who says, well, we can meet here at this time and we can talk about this. Well, then suppose the student earns a degree the same as the professor and comes on staff at the same school. Well, now they're peers. Now they can relate as equals. Now they have equal bargaining power in the relationship. See, there's no way that we can rise up to the level of God to have that sort of equal ability to relate to him, equal bargaining power, if you will. No. And we'll see what makes Jesus different if we remember what Paul said in Philippians 2. If you remember from a few weeks ago, or months ago, rather, we looked at Philippians 2, and, and Paul talks about who Jesus is, and he says, though he's in the form of God, he humbled himself and took upon our nature. And you see, this means that knowing Jesus is completely opposite to the way the world usually works. Because the way the world works, if you want to know somebody important, you do good things, you earn the rights, you raise up to their level, and then you could know them as peers. But see, the way Jesus works is though he is God, the highest status, he takes on our nature. He humbles himself, he, he puts on our attire, and he does that to know us. The basis of us knowing Jesus is not us rising up to his level. It is rather him lowering himself down to ours. I said before that, that the only, you know, one of the ways to get to see the president is to do something great, like win the Super Bowl or a medal in the Olympics, then he'll be invited over. And, but knowing Jesus is more like the president if he were to take off his suit, leave the White House, put on the garb of a, of a homeless man, and go into a shelter and meet somebody there and say, I want to know you. You would never come up to my level, but I've come down to you. But you see, even there, that's not the end of the story. Because as Philippians chapter 2 goes on to say, God then highly exalts Christ. He doesn't stay low, and he doesn't stay dead. He's raised from the dead, and then exalted to the highest place. And you see, because Christ has identified himself with us, because Christ has united himself to us, then we are raised with him. We are given performance as if we live the perfect life of Christ. And we are given status, but not because of who we are, because we're found in Christ. That's why Paul says in verse 8 that he wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. See, Paul is saying those things that would give me performance and status in the eyes of the world that would help me in knowing other people do not help me in knowing Christ because I get those things from Christ. I have my status in him. My performance is from him. His righteousness is given to me as a gift. So friends, do you understand that? Or are you trying to impress God with your performance? Do you think so highly of what you do that it commends you to God so that you can know him? Or perhaps the opposite. Perhaps you think to yourself, I'll... Never 
have everything together. My life is a mess. I don't have everything together. Everything's falling apart. And therefore, I could never be the kind of person who God would want to know. Friends, that's how you think you're wrong. Because God is interested in knowing you. He proves that in Christ, that he came down to us. See, really, there are two ways that people go wrong here. The first way is to think that, well, God would never be interested in knowing me. Christ would never be interested in knowing me because of who I am. That's wrong. But it is equally wrong to think, well, God loves me because of who I am and because of what I've done, and therefore he's interested in knowing me because of my character. No, God is interested in knowing you, but not because of your character, but because of his, because he's that kind of God. And basically what Paul is doing in this passage, he is, he is saying the point is that I look away from myself, away from my righteousness, away from my own inherent worthiness, and I look to Christ, and he is the basis of knowing him. I want to be found in him. We also said that under normal circumstances, our status and performance gives us in some way bargaining power in relationships. It helps us not get squashed in the relationships. It helps us have a little bit of control to some extent. But you see, that doesn't happen with Jesus either. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, how could I ever think that I have bargaining power in my relationship with Jesus. But actually, it's very common. People do it all the time. So they they think to themselves, well, I did this for God. Now he has to do this for me. Maybe they might think to themselves, Jesus, I've kept my nose clean. I've stayed out of trouble. Now please give me a happy marriage and a good family. Please get my kids to turn out right. Or maybe they might think, Jesus, I'm serving the church so faithfully. Now why can't you just give me a little bit more money so I'm not barely scraping by each month? Or maybe, Jesus, I'm trying to do good things. Why can't you get rid of this cloud of depression? Or maybe, Jesus, why did you have to let that loved one die? I prayed, I fasted, I gave money to the church, I did everything I was supposed to do. Now, why couldn't you do this one thing that I asked? See, if we think that way, it's because we think that our actions gives us some sort of bargaining power with God. And there's one very important reason why that is never the case. And that is clearly seen here, because Jesus is Lord. Look at what Paul says again in verse 8. I count everything lost in view of knowing the surpassing in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Who is Jesus Christ? He is my Lord, Paul's Lord. And what kind of Lord is he? Well, we go back to Philippians 2. God has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. If you don't get anything else out of the New Testament, you get at least the fact that Jesus is Lord. And if he is Lord, if he is the absolute sovereign ruler over everything, then it is impossible for us to have any bargaining power with him because we already owe him everything. There's a very interesting uh, exchange that Jesus has with some people in Luke chapter 17. Jesus is talking to people who aren't really sure if they want to follow him. And the best I understand it, they're kind of asking the question, what's in it for me? And Jesus is relating to them. And what does Jesus say? Well, he doesn't talk about the perks of following him. He doesn't say, oh, you want to know why you should follow me? Well, if you follow me, I'll give you the spirit, I'll give you eternal life, I'll do these things for you. Here's what, here's what you get if you follow me. He doesn't do that. Instead, he gives them a situation to consider. And the situation is this. He says, suppose a master has a servant and the servant is working out in the field. It doesn't obligate the master to say, hey, sit here in my house 
eat at my table. I'll fix you food. No. The master can say to the servant, after the servant's been working in the field, come and fix me food, and then after you fix me food, you can eat. The point is, the master has the right to tell the servant what to do without that obedience obligating the master to do anything for the servant. The master doesn't say to the servant, hey, great meal, I owe you one. Next time you're hungry, let me know. No, because he's the master. Now, that might seem like an odd story to tell people who are on the fence about deciding whether or not they want to follow Jesus. But you see, Jesus is making the point that our relationship with him is not a business deal. It's not where we bring something to the table that obligates God and Christ to treat us in a certain way. It is not even like a friendship in the sense that what we do endears him to us. As a friend might be sort of wanting to do something for us simply because of of what we do for them. Where we have some sort of equal stake or equal pledge in the relationship. No. Jesus is saying, I am the master. And he has the right to ask us to do anything without that obligating him to treat us in any certain way. And if we know him, we must know him like that. There is no way to know Jesus other than knowing him as the Lord. We must know him as the Lord. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, but, but that's odd because, um, actually, we'll get to there. But question, how do I know if I have a bargaining type of uh, mentality with Jesus? How do I know if I might have fallen into that? Well, the way to figure that out is to ask yourself the question, how do I respond when Jesus doesn't meet my expectations? How do you respond when the marriage you've prayed for for years doesn't get saved or doesn't happen or the loved one isn't healed? How do you respond if your time of unemployment lingers far longer than you wish it would? Do, do you protest and say, God, you, you haven't lived up to your end of the deal? Well, friends, the point is that there's no deal in that sense. He is Lord, and he calls us to obey him. He calls us to follow him, period. Now, you might say, but, but isn't it true that Jesus actually does invite us to eat with him? I mean, that's what the Lord's Supper is about. And doesn't, doesn't he call us friends? Well, yes, he does. But the point of Jesus telling that story in Luke 17 is to let us know that that, that friendship is not based on who we are. It's not because we deserve it, because we've earned the right, because we've risen up to to his status. It is simply his pure sovereign grace. So we don't have the kind of relationship with God where our good works obligate God to bless us. Instead, we have the kind of relationship with God where out of his mere good pleasure, out of his kindness, out of his love, he blesses us. So friends, why is it that we have to choose between being confident in ourselves And knowing Jesus, well, the answer, what we've seen, is that our goodness and our status doesn't earn us anything before God. That's not what obligates God to treat us in a certain way. It's not the basis of our relationship with God. Instead, the basis of our relationship with God is God's mercy and grace and the love of Jesus whereby from all eternity past, he has loved us. That's why we sang the song, my song is love unknown. It is amazing love. He determined to love us and determined to save us and determined to bring us in a relationship with him so that in all of eternity future, then he could lavish on us the glory of his grace. And friends, you must realize that Jesus does this as God. 
He's not just a man who happens to be particularly loving for a particular period of time. Rather, he's God who is acting in concert with the entire Trinity and has determined and acted from all eternity to love his people with an effectual love, the kind of love that doesn't change, but the kind of love that changes them. So friends, if if you're a believer here this morning, then you need to know that there was never a time when you were outside of God's electing love. There was never a time when Jesus did not know you. And friends, that is the basis of you knowing him. It is his knowing you. That's why Paul can say later in chapter 3 of Philippians, we'll get to this in a few weeks, but he says that he wants to lay hold of Christ, but then he adds, I want to lay hold of the one who has laid hold of me. The basis of Paul, being able to know him, being able to, to hold on to Christ and grasp him, is that Christ has already grasped Paul. That's why Paul says here that he wants to be found in Christ. The idea of being found in something is passive, right? Paul knows that it's not him trying to get into Christ that is the basis for which he'll know Christ. It is that God in Christ has brought him into himself. That's Then Paul describes what it means to be in Christ by saying, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God on the basis by faith. See, Paul is then clinging not to his own righteousness. He's clinging to the righteousness of Christ, given to him as a gift. And that's that's the only way for him to know Christ. And that's why he can't be confident in himself and know Christ at the same time. Now, finally, and very briefly, what does knowing Christ lead to? What is the result? And here, I just basically want to situate this passage in Paul's overall point of the chapter, where he's talking about glorying in Christ. Remember verse uh, 2 of Philippians 3? Um, Or verse 3, rather, where he says, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So I think that that's really the the fountain of all this that has come in the passages we looked at today. So it's really all about what it means to glory in Christ. And what it means to glory in Christ, we said, is what it means to boast in Christ. And what Paul is doing here is he's connecting the idea of knowing Christ and glorying in Christ. It's kind of like saying they're two sides of the same coin. And I think what Paul is also doing, we'll understand this better, it might be a little bit confusing for a second, but, but let me anchor this in what what Jeremiah says, because I think Paul is referring back to Jeremiah here. In Jeremiah chapter 9, we read this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Now, put that in context. Jeremiah is writing to people who are about to have their world fall in on them. He is writing to people who are about to be taken into captivity. Jeremiah's point is that the armies are coming. They're coming and they are going to get you. And you will be taken into a foreign land. You will see loved ones die in battle. Your life is going to turn upside down. In other words, your life's really going to stink. And anything that you thought you could put confidence in will be utterly stripped away from you in that moment. Except this. 
that you know me. And why is that important? Why is that something that that Jeremiah is saying they should boast in? Well, the answer, as Jeremiah explains, is because of who God is and how they know him. Because God is the one who practices steadfast love. And this, is, this means his covenantal love. This means that before the foundation of the world, God has sought them. God has known them. He has called them to himself. That's why they know him. So Jeremiah is saying, boast in this, that you know him. And that means of all that he has done from you. And let that give you confidence as you face this horrible season in your lives. And Paul is picking up on what Jeremiah says and is saying, all those things that I might be tempted to boast in and all those things that you might be tempted to boast in are worthless compared to boasting in Christ. I love this, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism sums this up well. It asks the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? How would you answer that question? Well, here's what the answer to the catechism says. That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. That's what it means to know him. And Paul's point here is that it is impossible to know him and not boast in him. If you know Jesus in this way, and there's only one Jesus, there's only one way to know Jesus. We can't know him simply as a man who lived a life years ago that... that you know, may have done good things. That's not who Jesus really is. There's only one way to know Jesus, and that is as, the, as God who has come down for us. If you know Jesus, then boast in Jesus. Have the confidence in him that Paul does. Have the confidence that says, though my world may be falling in on me, though all things may go wrong, I know that I know him, and that means he has pledged himself to me. Think if Paul were to face difficult tasks, he's not going to boast in confidence in himself and sing, I have confidence in me. He's going to sing, I have confidence in Christ, that that I know him. And my confidence is in the fact that my relationship with him is not based on my performance or my status, but based entirely on the grace and mercy of God through Christ. You know, in the end, we have to ask ourselves, how much do those things that we could boast in really matter in the end? I mean, it'd be nice to win an Olympic medal, but... What good would that do one year later, or 10 years later, or 100 years later? Well, in the end, it means nothing. But if you glory in knowing Christ, then in the end, it means everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending forth Christ as a demonstration of your love, of your covenantal love, that you have sought us, and that we have could do nothing to raise ourselves up to your standard, up to your status, but you have come down to us. You have made yourself lowly, and you have united yourself to us, that then you may raise us up far above where we were, that you would lavish on us your glory and all riches in Christ. You give us the status, not because of what we have in ourselves, but because of what is found in Christ. Lord, we pray that we would know him that way, and that he would be our confidence and our boast. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name.